Hello there, youthful artists, and welcome to another episode of Opera Offstage Halloween Edition. I'm your co-host, Michelle, and this is... And I'm Jesse. And we've been really excited about this episode for a really long time. <laughs> How do you feel about it finally, finally recording this episode that we've basically been planning since we started this podcast? Oh, it's finally here. It's finally upon us. I just love Halloween. I love the spooky season. I love scary stories. And I'm excited to talk about some of like the creepy stuff surrounding opera and classical music. Man, I just, I love spooky season. It's so good. What a, what a time to be alive. But also, Jesse, we just celebrated your birthday past Thursday. So happy belated birthday. As I said, another year older, another year closer to the arbitrary yap age cutoff. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, the gift of age. Yes, and thanks for everybody who played our little Jesse-themed trivia. I honestly had a good time looking through the people who missed out on that first question where we played two truths and a lie, just in case you missed this week's stories. And um, one of them had two truths about Jesse, and the lie was that she loves Anna Trebko. And um, a, a surprising amount of people got that question wrong. Fake fans. I know. Not to roast anybody, but we only bring it up in like every episode of our podcast, so... <laughs> oh, it was good fun. Fun announcement. We have branched out to TikTok recently, and we were making spooky TikToks. We've got a couple up already. We've got some fun stuff already on there for you guys, including a story about how I absolutely destroyed a bench during a photo shoot. But <laughs> last night, Michelle and I were trying to do a trend on TikTok where you make yourself look like a Tim Burton character. And it's this little sliding picture where it progressively takes the picture as it slides down. So what you do is you hold your eyes open so your eyes are big, like a Tim Burton character, and then you run your thumbs along your cheekbones to make you look more gaunt. Um, they make it look so easy, and it is not. Michelle and I butchered this. We made so many hideous creations. There's honestly nothing more frustrating to me than watching these like 12 year olds on TikTok just do it. And then Jesse and I were like, as ah, this is so hard, like, let's give it a shot. Like, this will be cute. Wrong. We were on the phone trying to do it for like an hour. I've never it been was... so flexed on. I don't know if it's like actually very difficult or if we're just incredibly lame. It might be a mixture of both, but we will post the absolute horror screenshots of our attempts on stories this week and that will definitely be the spookiest thing you see all week absolutely halloween no costumes needed yeah oof do go check out our non-failed attempt tiktoks which are up on at opera offstage including a new series we're starting of opera inspired cocktails the first of which is based on our opera watch party winner zalome so if you want to learn how to make a really fun spooky cocktail based on the bloody gory mess that is Zalame, go and check that out. And then, also exciting, our first YouTube video is coming out tomorrow on Wednesday. We have a really fun little Q&A with Michelle and I asking each other questions, some of them for you to get to know us and some of them for us to annoy each other. So please go and check that out. It is also under Opera Off Stage and we will have the link in our bio. Huzzah! Huzzah! All right. 
Let's get into some creepy stories. Now, shall we? Uh, well, I've got a really classic, classic scary story of the classical music world, which is the Curse of the Nine. So the Curse of the Ninth is the superstition connected with composers writing their Ninth Symphony. Uh, the belief is that like once a composer finishes his Ninth Symphony, he will die. And this really starts to take over like the mentality of composers. It begins really with Mahler. Now he's not the first person to ever obviously die after his Ninth Symphony. What actually happens is Beethoven and Bruckner die after their Ninth Symphony, and Mahler becomes absolutely obsessed with this idea that he was going to die when he finished his Ninth Symphony. And so he actually tried to avoid technically writing a Ninth Symphony. So after writing his Eighth, he wrote a piece of music that was essentially a symphony, but he did not call it that, and he refused to let anyone else call it that. <laughs> Trying to get sneaky with fate. Yeah, I like how he's like, listen, everybody, we can't call it the ninth because I don't want to die. All right. What? Like, you're going to what? Fool the universe? Like, what does he think? I don't know who he thinks he's fooling. Yeah, I don't know either. But Mahler finishes his ninth symphony and starts to work on his tenth. And then he contracts pneumonia while writing it and dies. So essentially, he proved himself correct. He really played himself. Man, we got to have a good, like, negated loophole. Oh, yeah. Satan himself is just like, nah. And, and Schoenberg, in his biography of Mahler kind of uh, boils it all down for us. It seems that the ninth is a limit. He who wants to go beyond it must pass away. It seems as if something might be imparted to us in the tenth, which we ought not yet to know, for which we are not ready. Those who have written a ninth stood too close to the hereafter. Schoenberg was spooky. <laughs> Very spooky. We should invite him on <laughs> to our Halloween episode. But also, Beethoven and Bruckner aren't the only ones. Schubert and Dvorak also die, and Von Williams. Aw, Rafe. All died after completing their ninths. But actually, Mahler could only have known about Beethoven and Bruckner because Schubert and Dvorak, people didn't know they had nine symphonies until way later. Was, uh, a lot of their stuff didn't come out until after they died. So this is kind of one person getting overwhelmed by a superstition and then accidentally creating a pattern. <laughs> Love it. He dies before they find out that these other people have Ninth Symphony. I love that. So he really actually kind of invents the legend, which is then carried on by Schoenberg, who obviously kind of solidifies it in music history. Like, The Curse of the Ninth is definitely something you hear about in music school. And it is interesting to consider that, like, this is, I think this is something that even now people think about as they, as they come upon, like, a Ninth Symphony. Yeah, it is a very rare thing now, isn't it? And I feel like anything, anytime there is a Ninth Symphony, it is very spooky. I, I do, I do love the way people try to avoid writing it. Obviously, there are tons and tons of people who have written more than nine symphonies. Absolutely so many composers. <laughs> but I think it is that these are all such big names that for them all to die after finishing their ninth, that it, it does just freak people out. Imagine being like a young composer and having just finished your like 11th symphony and being like, wow, I must not be a great composer because I didn't die. <laughs> oh, that's the actual curse. You actually have to be a good. <laughs> you have to be an excellent composer to die on your ninth symphony. So if you have written more, sorry. 
Then consider some other very, very famous composers. Mozart wrote 41 symphonies. Haydn wrote 104. Sorry, Mozart and Haydn, you just don't make the cut. <laughs> uh, Shostakovich wrote 15. Villalobos wrote 12. Like, there were plenty. Yeah, Mozart. Sorry, guys. Haydn, clearly the worst composer. Really not going to put Haydn up there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's the curse of, of seeing patterns where there really aren't. Where a couple specific in- incidences, like, make people believe in something, even though there's plenty of counter evidence. Yes. But my favorite part about this was while I was researching the Curse of Nines, where, by the way, so many people were very, very agitated about proving that it wasn't a real curse, to which I was like, I think we all know. <laughs> which is why it was so funny to me that this is actually from the Wikipedia page on this subject, because I was looking for sources. And it says, this folk notion persists in popular journalism and is not supported in musicology or serious music criticism. Oh my. As if someone's thesis is on this curse. I love that. As if we don't already know. It's a legend. Uh, yeah, you get into music school and uh, for composition and they're like, listen, you can write eight symphonies, so use them well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they better be amazing. Don't write that ninth until you're ready to leave this mortal plane. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, love that. Love that, love that. Oh my goodness. All right, I'm excited to hear what you've got for me. All right, friends, let's dive into a very mysterious and interesting story. December 1930, Chelsea, London. A woman hears the distant cries of a kitten from her mysterious neighbor's apartment down below. She notices the smell of gas and sends her maid downstairs to investigate. Unable to open the door and alarmed by the overwhelming smell of gas, the maid calls the police. When the police break into the apartment, they find a bewildering scene. A man in his 30s lying dead on the floor. A newly written yet unfinished will in plain sight on the desk nearby. The gas oven still running and distant cries of his moaning cat. The door had been locked and bolted from the inside. Was this an act of suicide? A murder? Or perhaps something far more evil and sinister? Let's dive into the story of composer Peter Warlock. Do you like that very dramatic intro? I love it. I love the scene setting. I love the storytelling. Hit me with it. Philip Heseltine was born on October 30th, 1894. I also love the fact that he was born the day before Halloween because this man is very spooky indeed. Uh, He was born to an upper class middle family living in London, and he grew up to be a music critic, Oxford scholar, and editor known for his songs and for his exemplary editions of Elizabethan music. Now, highly obsessed with composers like Mahler and Wagner at a young age, Peter Heseltine flirted with the idea of being a composer, much to his mother's dismay. He went to school at Oxford, but ultimately dropped out and started drinking very heavily. No. So, yeah, so sad. So Heseltine kind of interestingly fits this idea that many music critics are actually failed artists themselves, and that as an adult, he really, really wanted to be a composer. He was absolutely obsessed with music, and he published songs that were decently well-received, but nothing incredibly overwhelming. He was a very, I don't know, average man, very well-behaved, very, you know, an Oxford scholar, right? Exactly what you would think. But his drinking problem 
But his drinking problem and emotional instability leads him to absolute financial ruin. And over the course of several years, he writes hundreds of letters to his mother asking her for money. So he very much kind of lives under this brooding mother who just is not having the fact that he's so into music. This is like a a shockingly modern story. Right? (laughs) Could be any current composer today. But, you know, over the years, he basically becomes very tired of his life and tired of living with failure after failure as a composer. So Heseltine decides to transform himself. And he wants something that's powerful, that's interesting, slightly dark, and he's looking for a new alter ego. So he goes with a new name, Peter Warlock. And it's very symbolic, this this Warlock last name, because he finds himself ultimately drawn to the occult. And interestingly, his metamorphosis is actually incredibly successful. Nearly overnight, Warlock becomes a hit. Publishers inquire about his music. He's writing a mile a minute. He's praised like crazy. And everyone is so interested to know where this songwriter has mysteriously just appeared from. He's also supposed to be very, very handsome. um, And women are very attracted to this new, dark, edgy alter ego. But this alter ego, this change of name, actually really completely changes him. The moment that he becomes Peter Warlock, he really kind of starts to delve into what medical professionals now believe to be some sort of bipolar disorder. It was probably something that he always struggled with, but allowing himself the freedom to have this double persona really just begins to spiral out of control. He moves around kind of the greater London area. He moves to a very quaint English village, and he goes very much hardcore into drugs, parties, sex orgies. He reportedly rides his beloved motorcycle naked through these quaint English what? villages and people no, no, no. are we're not moving yes. forward from that how would that be comfortable <laughs> I don't know this was a motorcycle in the early 20th century imagine what the roads were like I don't know this poor man so he's battling with depression out the wazoo. He's drinking himself into oblivion. When he's living in these quaint English villages, he actually moved to a a residence that was right across from a bar. And he moved to this quaint town because there were about, I believe, 74 bars within a small distance to his house. Holy moly. And he would get his friends to wheelbarrow him to... And from, I guess, different tavern crawls, if you will, (laughs) because he was just insane. He would have multiple men and women in his bed at all times. He really just goes absolutely insane. And because of his alcohol and drug abuse, he's horribly in debt. Even though he's making actually good money from his writings, he's horribly in debt. His life really is spinning out of control. And in 1950, Warlock meets a young artist model named Minnie Kenig, who, on account of her volatile temper, was simply nicknamed Puma. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also absolutely crazy. Naturally, the two crazies fall in love. He 
gets her pregnant and something that was super common for him was he would get people pregnant all the time and then give them like five coins and be like here go get an abortion i don't want to deal with it so he tries the same on her and she says i'm not going to do that i'm like a good catholic woman which is really not true at all but (laughs) she doesn't get an abortion they have a son together they end up separating later in life because they're just the hottest mess you've ever heard what that relationship didn't work out it didn't work out shocking i know the most shocking part of the story so things really start to take a bad turn when he's in ireland in 1917 he begins reading about the occult leader alistair crowley who was called at the time and still referred to today as the wickedest man in the world Oh, yeah. Crowley is known to be... Yeah. <laughs> right. There Just are so like, many characters uh, named after him because of his notorious reputation. Mm-hmm. So you can do your own research on Crowley, but ultimately he's known for his experiments with black magic. Many of the people who followed him turned to madness. A lot of them also, you know, used drugs or used alcohol. And Crowley was very interesting in that if you were trying to exercise restraint towards something or you were trying to get yourself to be out of the habit of doing something he would suggest cutting yourself to keep yourself from doing whatever it was you were trying to keep yourself from not doing and he would use a lot of things like that on his little followers and the thing that was very dangerous about him was he would always say I would never tell you to do something that I wouldn't do myself like you can trust what I'm telling you to do because I would never have you do something that I haven't done myself. Now, the problem with that was is he would do anything and everything. So that really meant absolutely nothing. It doesn't really make a difference if they're a masochist. Nope. Exactly. So, you know, Warlock in his, I don't know, drunken, sex-crazed, <laughs> drug-filled stupor loves every bit of it. And to give you a glimpse into his fascination, here's a quote from one of Warlock's letters. He says, I have traveled in the dark, often ignorant of the fact I was traveling at all. I have received very definite and detailed communications concerning music from sources which the ignorant and unheeding world calls supernatural, and that there is unlimited power behind these sources. So a lot of the draw to the practice of dark arts of black magic for Warlock was that he felt this huge surge in creative genius in doing these practices and that's what he just fed off of and the music that he was writing at this time was very lovely and he really was finding a lot of success in his music so there was really no point in trying to stop in the meantime it's important to know that throughout his lifetime warlock was very very close friends and practically worshipped this dutch composer bernard van dieren Van Deeren is very important towards the end of his life. Now, Van Deeren also struggled with money and often came to Warlock for help. He did this with a lot of people, but Warlock had enough money most of the time to really set him up nice and well. So Deeren and Warlock become besties. And as their friendship continues, Deeren actually is the sole heir to Warlock's fortune. And uh, Van Deeren literally writes his will in his 20s. Um, leaving his money to him. So let's fast forward to the night before Warlock's death. Wait, wait, wait. He's re- wait. Who who's in whose will? Um, <laughs> Van Deeren is the sole heir to 
Warlocks. Warlocks fortune. Okay, great. Yes. Warlock literally writes his first will in his 20s. Why? Who if knows? you were living but like he, he was, you would. I guess that's true. <laughs> Fast forward to the night before Warlock's death. Warlock is in a great mood. He's making money off of his music. I believe they were coming from a premiere and he invites his ex-wife, you know, Puma, and <laughs> Von Deeren to his home and they're chatting they're talking and all of a sudden warlock becomes obsessed with this woman that was in his life before this very wonderful kind woman that he feels he missed out on a life of love with her and he decides that because he loves her so much that he is going to write a new will that leaves all of his fortune to her instead of von Deeren. now it's very important to remember that Von Deeren and his ex-wife are with him the night he dies. Now, supposedly, Von Deeren and his, wife, his ex-wife leave, and Warlock, in typical fashion, had been drinking heavily, and somehow the gas is turned on, and he dies in his apartment. Very suspicious. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Some believe that because Warlock was so depressed, he was so drugged out, drinking himself into oblivion, that it was perhaps an act of suicide. Not everybody believes that, because in, on one hand, his music was doing very well, so why would he kill himself? Hmm, I don't know. Open for interpretation. Now remember that Warlock and Puma had a son. This son grows up to claim that that night, naturally, because his father decided to write a new will for a different woman that Von Deeren naturally tried to kill him with the gas because he would no longer be entitled to his fortune. Now, what's interesting is if you remember the story I read at the very beginning, the door was locked and bolted from the inside. <laughs> ah, yes, the classic locked room scenario. Right? So how would Von Deeren have killed him? He doesn't live on the first story, so jumping through the window isn't a very suitable option. So who knows? Others believe that because of his probable bipolar disorder and interest in black magic, that perhaps in his drunken stupor he became so possessed that he did it to himself. Um, so we don't really know why he died. Many scholars are feel very confused about it, but I think the general consensus is that it probably was an accident, as leaving a gas oven was not very difficult in those times. But... He did manage to leave his cat outside the apartment. So was it suicide? Did he lock himself inside to be gassed to his death? Was he possessed? Was it a mixture of all of it? I guess we'll never know. Listen, I'm going to solve this right here, right now. <laughs> Jesse's like, no, I got no. it. No, I think between like the cat and the locked door, I, I think it's probably suicide. And a son probably. who probably feels very unloved by his father. Because even if he's writing a will, it doesn't mean that he wouldn't still continue to support Van Deeren financially. And that means Van Deeren is largely better off if he's alive. Yep. So to me, the odds stack in favor of him still being alive. Yeah. Or still being alive. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. He's still alive to this day. <laughs> Magic. 
Uh, no, my, I think he probably committed suicide. Yeah. But it is, it is a tempting tale of, of, with the new will. The new will is the real thing in there that really gets people. Right. Uh, that was a wild ride. But he was such an impulsive man. I, it really is. I just love that he created a new personality. Yeah, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lame. I need an edgy new name. And I think the thing that's really funny is when he does change his name, it's kind of like, it's a very, very small scale of like the listomania craze, right? It's kind of like that. Like overnight, suddenly the music that he's been creating is taken very seriously because he has this whole new mysterious persona. So his music was actually probably always pretty good. He just needed to like zhuzh himself up a little bit, you know? Listen, go listen to our social media episode and learn about branding. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He really branded the (laughs) heck out of himself. We love to hear it. Well, he's certainly not the only composer who has a, let's say, contested death. Hmm. So I've got to up my storytelling game, clearly. (laughs) But on November 6th, 1893, nine days after he premieres his sixth symphony... Tchaikovsky dies in St. Petersburg at the age of 53. Now, the official cause of death is cholera, which is confirmed by two separate doctors. And at this time, there is a huge outbreak of cholera in the city. So it's not that weird that he would have died from contaminated drinking water. However, there is like a slight problem with this. So at this point in his life, Tchaikovsky is very much a famous, famous Russian composer. The people dying from cholera are largely lower class. So the idea that someone like Tchaikovsky could get cholera and die from it without a doctor catching it seems odd. Hmm. And it's not even later on that they catch on to this. There are actually tons of people who very early on start to question whether or not it actually happened. People start questioning. Apparently, people are able to see the corpse. I never was able to find out why, but apparently it didn't look like a body that had died from cholera. And in <laughs> fact, it's so weird to some people around Tchaikovsky that even the composer Rimsky-Korsakov writes in his autobiography about it. Though you won't always find it in his autobiography because it's actually censored in some versions. That's so funny. I like how for some reason his body's on display and there's people who are like, my cousin died of cholera and he didn't look like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? It was really interesting. I think part of it had to do less with like the actual seeing of the body, but also how it was handled after death. Because I, they were trying to contain a cholera outbreak. Mm. And so I think they were questioning both what the body looked like, but also how officials were handling his body as if they knew he didn't die of cholera. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But, but even then, like, the point is, like, this was so suspicious to people. Because even though to us it sounds like, you know, a guy died in the past of cholera. Sounds legit. <laughs> Seems normal. Seems normal. The first thing, this is actually kind of the opposite of Peter Warlock, which is that people believe they're being lied to about the fact that Tchaikovsky has committed suicide. Okay. So instead of being murdered... They believe that they're actually being lied to about the fact that he he killed himself. Now, pretty much all of the basis for this is based around the fact that Tchaikovsky was gay. Right. Which would have made it very, very difficult to live in Russia at this time period. Absolutely. And so, but from there, the reasoning branches out far and wide as to how exactly it happened. And you know what? I'll actually say, I use the term suicide loosely, and you'll see why in a second. Now, the, the very basic theory is that 
Tchaikovsky was just struggling to live a hidden life and was afraid of bringing shame on his family. His brother was also gay, and so he was afraid of revealing that. And, you know, Tchaikovsky was terrified. Uh, he didn't really like leaving Russia. And so the idea of being exiled from Russia was also horrifying to him, which is what would have happened mm -hmm. had he been discovered. Um, you can find in his letters, like, he gets terribly homesick whenever he leaves Russia. Mm -hmm. So that's, like, the very basic one. But then there's also the idea that there was a court of honor made up of his former classmates from the College of Law in St. Petersburg who came together and told him he had to commit suicide. Which, by the way, is not suicide. That's murder or manslaughter. Love that. If if a group of people force you to commit suicide, that's murder. Yeah. <laughs> and that is actually a widely believed theory. Because when I was looking at that, I was like, this is like the wild one from out of left field, right? This is the one that isn't really certain. But actually, there's a British musicologist named David Brown who basically says... The fact that he committed suicide cannot be doubted, but what precipitated his suicide has not been conclusively established. But he almost certainly died of arsenic poisoning, which happens to look quite a bit like cholera. Oh, sneaky. Mm-hmm. This, this idea that there was a group of students, uh, of former students who came together, is, is popularized by Russian musicologist Alexandra Orlova all the way back in 1979. Um, and you can actually find an article about it in the New York Times oh. uh, where they kind of go through and break down things. That's the thing. Tchaikovsky's death is contested even today. They go through, uh, there's a BBC documentary on it, There's which interviews all of these people I'm talking about. But it's definitely not a closed case in any sense. But basically the idea for this one is that Tchaikovsky was flirting and courting the nephew of a duke and the duke had figured that out and was sending a letter to the czar to report him. Uh -oh. however his messenger was a former student of the school so in order to avoid shaming their school they came together and they held essentially court and they told him that the, he had to kill himself Oof. and this is actually reported by the messenger's name is jacoby he told his wife and the wife told orlova who is the musicologist Years later. Mm. Which is wild. It's wild to think about that there's technically what would be a secondary source on this. Yeah. Because she wasn't in the room, but it was her husband. Right. So that's, I mean, that's both damning and not. Yes. Because on one hand, you've got someone who's claiming to have been there. But on the other hand, like, it's also fun to have a story. Yeah. True. Interesting. Right? Oh, poor little Tchaikovsky. I know. I love him. Why couldn't he just live and be happy? Imagine how many more beautiful works we'd have from him. Yeah. The other one is that the actual czar himself ordered him to commit suicide to avoid having one of their most famous composers be outed. Hmm. Ordering suicide is still murder. That's just an execution <laughs> by a different name. Yeah, that's very true. Justice for Tchaikovsky. Yeah, and there is another composer who repeatedly confirms that, like, that's what happened. Same as Alexander Glasunov. So you've got two people with very conflicting stories. What are, what are you feeling? And all claiming that he was seducing someone's relative. <laughs> Some nephew of some dude. Yeah. No, in in the second story, it's the, it's the son of the caretaker of his brother's apartments. In the other one, it's the nephew of a duke. And in the other one, it's actually his, his own nephew, who's Vladimir uh, Davidov. 
I'm not pronouncing that right. But, which by the way, my favorite part of this whole thing is that his, his own nephew is referred to by the nickname of Bob. <gasps> Bob. Bob. <laughs> what am I feeling? <sighs> this is so tricky. I think that it's far more likely, once again, that he killed himself. I feel like Occam's razor, because he had tried to commit suicide before. He had waded out into a river. Right. So the idea that he would have just purposefully drank unfiltered water makes sense to me. Hmm. Because it dying of cholera lets you avoid the shame of suicide. And it's clear that in a lot of his life, he was trying to avoid feeling ashamed. Right. And and so in his own way, he created this this almost perfect crime. Now, here's the thing. Here's the real kicker of this story, though, is, you know, I said it's an unsolved mystery. There is no confirmation. You've got multiple people with, like, technical firsthand accounts. Right. You know, and all these people who say, I was at his deathbed or I was at his his weird student court hearing. Yeah. But arsenic, if it was arsenic poisoning and not cholera, arsenic stays in the body for over a hundred years we have tchaikovsky's body oh and personally i don't know why they haven't just exhumed him yeah but is there anything really to like check out anymore isn't he just like totally decayed no i mean a body doesn't totally decay i mean he died how long to google how long does it take for a body to decay i mean it would stay in the bones i think well yeah that's that's the that's the question that if it's in the bones then yeah that seems like a pretty logical thing to do yeah i i'm pretty sure they could test for it now i'm sure his body's in russia which makes things more complicated <laughs> the motherland and you know what i don't actually know if russia's ever i don't know <laughs> sounds weird but i don't know if russia's like in any formal way acknowledged the sexuality of tchaikovsky I don't know either. I can understand why, in that case, they wouldn't want to confirm it. Uh, yeah, that's true. Interesting. Yeah. So there is just this weird... I don't know. This one's fascinating to me because, A, there's multiple multiple of those weird accounts, but also, like, how odd to technically die of something that makes perfect sense, but also it still be very, very suspicious. Yeah. Very, very suspicious. Especially when he's like, I mean... Tchaikovsky is huge. You know what I mean? You'd think you'd want to know. But also, like, part of me, I, I will say this. I think the least likely scenario is the court of honor made up by his former classmates. Even though that's probably one <laughs> I know. of the more, that is actually a well thought out theory by Miss Orlova. Hmm. Like, she's she's clearly written out on it and it's it's well played out. My problem with it is the idea that anyone would really keep that secret. Even just among their, like, with their wife. Yeah. I just don't know that I believe that somebody could keep that quiet. Right. Especially a whole group of people. When you have a, a large group of people, the odds of it staying quiet is exponentially less. Oh, yeah. When, you, like, involving the death of one of the most famous people in your country. Yeah. Spooky. It's funky. It's weird. Starting my petition to exhume the body of Tchaikovsky. Starting our GoFundMe. <laughs> our Kickstarter. All right, I got a I got a murder story for you. Hit me with it. You ready? All right, we're going to talk about the Jeswaldo murders. Now, you've probably already heard of this. It's pretty pretty famous. Um, but if you haven't, you're in for a treat. A very gruesome treat. This is like and, the um, first thing that a a teacher hits you with in music history to be like, "Guess how fun learning is, kids." <laughs> we got murder on today's lesson <laughs> plan. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um <laughs> This is actually, like, honestly, I feel like you hear about 
Judge Waldo and the murders and you're like yikes that's crazy classical music wow amazing but then when you like actually research it you're like oh this actually is quite creepy and funny the story is also kind of funny which it should not be but anyways (laughs) let's dive into it Carlo Gesualdo was born in southern Italy in 1566, and he was the second son to a very wealthy, very prominent family. Now, as the second son, he goes off to Rome to be set on a path of an ecclesiastical career, because, you know, when you're the second son, that's what happens to you. And his older brother becomes the prince of Venosa. Now, in an absolutely crazy turn of events, his older brother dies. And suddenly, from one day to the next, Gesualdo's working in a church and then is suddenly headed back to his home to become a prince. So, I don't know. That's like a Disney movie. Wild (laughs) time? (laughs) Yeah. This is like, I don't know what. But Gesualdo is literally the only person who has an issue with this. So, Gesualdo is less than thrilled, obviously, because... He All he wants to do is work within a church and compose music. He's completely obsessed with music composition. And it's important to note that he's actually pretty incredible. He's known for writing intensely expressive madrigals and pieces of sacred music that use a lot of chromatic language that's not really heard again until the late 19th century. So when Gesualdo dies, this type of composition really dies as well. There's nobody else that really takes it on and makes it better that comes after him until we enter the 19th century which is really crazy his music is very very masterful and when you listen to it today as a modern listener you're like this was written in the like 16th century this is crazy so it's important to note that he's actually a really good composer he's also like a huge music nerd so becoming a prince is not ideal for him When he returns home, now that he's a prince, his main mission in life is to find a suitable wife and bear heirs. Now, keep in mind that at the time, I think Gesualdo, when he becomes prince, is like 20 or like 19 and is super awkward. That's right. He's been in the church. (laughs) Yeah. He's been in the church for his whole life. So it's not like he knows anything about wooing ladies. And he marries in uh, 1586 his first cousin, Dona Maria Davalos, and she, she's a little older than him. She's like 25. I believe Jesualdo is her third husband. And what? she is the life of the party. She is your 16th century it girl, if you will. Wait, but what um, happened to her husbands? Well, Jesse, I'm so glad that you asked because <laughs> concern. Her, her first husband died. Um, I honestly am so sorry. I forget the nice way to put this, but he died from, like, having too much sex. What? Um, (laughs) um, So her first husband literally passes away, and I'm pretty sure she got married again after that, but I don't remember exactly what happened to her second husband. You know, whatever. He dies. Something happens to him. Maybe he gets a disease. Who knows? But all that's saying is that poor little awkward, like, nerdy just unexperienced Jeswaldo marries a girl who killed her husband from too much sex so it's like really a match made in heaven right <laughs> somewhere e- somewhere someone has made this porno <laughs> well things are pretty fine between them for a while they have some 
I think they have like two sons together. But, you know, Jez Waldo is kind of not hot. He's not really the sexy husband that Dona Maria was looking for. So naturally, being the it girl that she was, she takes on other lovers and most notably Fabrizio Carafa, the third Duke of Andrea. So they're doing their thing and Gesualdo is completely oblivious. He, the only thing that matters to him is writing his music. So he's off in a different part of the palace, just full nerd out. Now, maids and guards knew what was going on the whole time, and <laughs> Gesualdo only finds out about all of these affairs Dona Maria is having because his uncle tries to seduce Dona Maria, and when she rejects him, you know, good old uncle decides to tell Josualdo of Maria's affairs. So that's super creepy in and of itself. So thanks, uncle. Now, from that day forward, something in Josualdo snaps. On the evening of October 16th, 1590, Dona Maria is staying in a separate apartment. She sneaks Fabrizio to her chambers while her maids stand guard. Now, as she locks the door to her bedroom chamber. Little does she know that the locks on her doors have been switched from metal locks to wood. Now, they can <laughs> be very easily broken, and they were replaced by Gesualdo. Now, Gesualdo's having a normal day in his palace. He goes to bed at the regular time. And suddenly, his servant, who, <laughs> funnily enough, is named Pietro. I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. And, you know, just classic Italian... 16th century servant name, right? <laughs> Gesualdo gets up in the middle of the night and starts getting dressed. And Pietro asks him, Master, why are you getting ready so late at night? And Gesualdo responds with, I'm going hunting. Now, Pietro, very confused, says, Master, you cannot go hunting. It's not like the hour to go hunting. That's crazy. And he, Gesualdo, responds by saying, you shall see what kind of hunting I am going to do. Gesualdo grabs two men, and he rides to Dona Maria's apartment, and these men are armed with weapons of war. Firearms, halberds, daggers, swords. They bust down the door, which has been replaced with wooden locks. Gesualdo storms in, he finds the lovers, and murders them in a most gruesome way. Gesualdo exits the bedroom soaked in blood. Pietro is shocked. And Gesualdo says, as he heads back into the chamber, I do not believe they are dead. Pietro follows him into the room. No, they're probably dead. Yep. Pietro follows him back into the room, sees the bodies of the lover. Fabrizio is bleeding out on the floor. Dona Maria is clearly dead in her bed. And Gesualdo continues to stab Dona Maria her dead body, repeating, I do not believe she is dead. They leave the bodies on display, and Gesualdo's first order when he returns home is to cut down all the trees on his palace property so that if the family of Dona Maria were to come for revenge, he would see them coming and be ready. Now, this is a little gruesome, but he, in just pure rage, I don't know, in like this moment of passion, he shoots... Fabrizio, the male lover. Yeah. He stabs him and cuts him all over. I mean, the amount of blood in this gruesome murder is just obscene. Dona Maria, he has slashed her throat and has stabbed her 
an ungodly amount of times. They're both, like, beaten to a pulp. There is no question whether or not they were alive. I mean, Fabrizio probably died when he was shot and then was continued to be stabbed after. So it's, it's really a gruesome and horrible crime. And it's important to note that at the time, if a man, you know, of Gesualdo's status, prince, if his wife were to be found having affairs, it was legal for the husband to kill the wife. That was not out of question. Nobody would have really thought that that was not normal. But people of the time were very surprised and a little concerned at how gruesome the murders had been and the fact that he left them on display. Other courses of action was to send the woman to a convent or you could put them in jail. So killing your wife was not the only option. If I were to marry someone who possibly murdered their first husband via sex, I would not be bad about that person having sex with other people. In fact, I might prefer it. One would think, right? That seems like... Right? He just wants to, he just wants to focus on his music. Who cares? Yeah, I think the thing that's really scary about it is that it's all very, very premeditated. And I think the extent of the attack and the violence, I don't know. It's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're going to just, like, kill your wife and her lover, like, yeah, maybe stab them both. But uh, it's a little it's a little scary. Yeah, it's such a weird change from who he was. Mm-hmm. And he never fully recovers from this night. So, unfortunately, he marries again. <laughs> Leonora d'Este. I was about to say why, and... but then I recognized that women in this period didn't really have the uh, the authority and the ability to say no. Yeah. But gosh, imagine being a dad and being like, yeah, no, this will (laughs) work. Yeah. So he marries Leonora and, um, you know, she was not like Dona Maria. I'm pretty sure she was just a regular gal, not really sleeping around. But Gesualdo, who, you know, kills his wife for having affairs, suddenly takes on many mistresses. He's absolutely horrible to Leonora. He publicly humiliates her. He publicly shames her. He speaks to her horribly. And he, um, you know, has relations with these mistresses within her view. So he becomes actually an awful, terrible person. Um, he hits her. It's, it's really just a bad thing but what's very interesting is that the time the music that he's composing is very beautiful it's not violent it doesn't really reflect any sort of anger or anything it's all very angelic and it doesn't really go anywhere it sits in the same pocket of emotion which scholars today you know try to read into but this idea of him living on with a guilty conscience is pretty solid. His servant conducts routine beatings as part of a medical procedure to keep him from sinning, I believe. Um, I don't know if I would describe that as medical. Oh, yeah. It's very similar to what we were hearing earlier for Peter Warlock. Yes. Um, And then at the very end of his life, he commissions a very strange painting in his honor you can you can do more research yourself, but ultimately the painting is very, the iconography is very odd. It's clear that Gesualdo had detailed conversations with the painter that he commissioned on what type of 
figures from the Bible he wanted. And the overall tone is that he's in the painting, very consciously not looking at the flames of hell, but also not really with the angels. And I think throughout his whole life, he's just trying to do something or be worthy of not going to hell. He's trying to wash himself of the sin of that night, and I don't really think he ever does. And that's the Giswaldo murders. Also, I'd love to know what that uncle was thinking. Freaking, I feel like every story like this needs a creepy, pervy uncle, right? Like, it's just not complete without that. But, like, what do you think after he's like, ah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get one over on her. I'll tell him. <laughs> I don't know. He's totally fine with Dona Maria having all these affairs, but when he's not included in the affairs, that's that's an issue. What a terrible... He gets canonized later, though. Does he? No, no, that's his uncle. Yeah. He becomes a saint. His uncle becomes a saint. How is that fair? Love that. <laughs> that is nonsense. He tried to sleep with another man's wife and then got her murdered for it. Seems pretty holy. Saint of what? Okay, wait. No, I have it. Do you want to hear what he's the saint of? Because hmm. it's incredible. What? Uh, he's the saint against ulcers. He is the saint of apple orchards. <gasps> Christian girl autumn. Yeah, there's your saint, girls. Love it. The saint of apple orchards. <laughs> I love it. Oh, he's also the saint of Monterey, California. What? <laughs> Why? He's the patron saint. Of Monterey, California. As a Californian, I do not claim him. I love that that means that just hundreds of years later, someone had to decide, no, no, this one. Incredible, incredible. Okay, so in our continuing story of what happens to composers' bodies after they die and why haven't we tested them for arsenic, (laughs) on December 6, 1791, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart receives a very sad funeral. Now, all funerals are sad, but considering Mozart and how famous he was and how famous he is now, it is funny to think that partially because he lived so far above his own means, he really wasn't buried with much fanfare. He he got what is considered essentially a middle-class burial, which is also a weird idea to think of. But essentially, he was buried in a grave with a couple other people, um, which is pretty common okay. for the time. Yeah. It happens. Yeah, it, you know, it does happen. And, you know, there was a procession and stuff, but only a couple people actually even attended. <laughs> really? That's really messed up. But the the point being is that this would make it very, very difficult for them to later find Mozart's body because the graves aren't all marked. You know, he was poor. He- I don't know if you've ever seen the price of a modern headstone, but they are not cheap and they weren't cheap then either. So... It wasn't even until 17 years after Mozart dies that his wife makes the first attempt to go and locate his grave. Which, if I were the wife of someone, and I would probably put something in the ground to mark it, if I could. Yeah. Or, like, draw a map. Here lies Jesse. Measure paces (laughs) from at least some kind of landmark. Yeah. But she makes an attempt to find it, but there are no crosses or markings, and so she kind of has to rely on her memory and the recollections of the cemetery staff, and so therefore nobody really knew. <laughs> Which, by the way, here's just a little fun fact. The spot where they thought Mozart's grave might be, they put a memorial there eventually, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is just a very 
anxious, anxiety-ridden angel leaning on a pillar oh, no. that has Mozart's name. Like, if you look at him, it looks like he was personally the angel looking for Mozart's bar- body for 17 years. Who was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where it is. All right? This is where it is now. We've all decided this. I mean, like, this is Mozart we're talking about. Like, how did people not think to mark him? It's shocking, honestly. Yeah, I I guess it's, like, the weird thing of, like, when somebody's famous in your time, you don't consider, like, an eternal legacy they might carry. I guess, but Mozart was huge. It also feels like in Mozart time, there are, like, so many... Yeah, I mean, listen, you're not wrong. I'm just saying... I guess people just were not interested in spending their money on Mozart. So rude. So that that leads us to an interesting question, which is like, what do you do when you can't find Mozart's body? But luckily, Mozart was famous. And so even though people wouldn't pay for him to have a grave that was recognizable, <laughs> grave diggers were interested in, of course, stealing his body and either keeping it or selling it for parts. And so in order that he could identify it, when he was buried, the gravedigger went back and marked his skull with a wire so he would know which one was his. Ooh. Because there are only four or five other bodies. It's not a mass grave. Right. So he marks Mozart with a wire so he can figure out where he is. Now, the reason he marks him with a wire instead of just, I don't know, looking at the body is that supposedly he waits 10 years to steal it. Oh, wow. Which is an impressive, that's an impressive desire and like, I don't know, determination. I would not. There's That's, nothing I am. Uh, there's very few things I could think of that I would remember 10 years later, especially without computers. Okay, but we, can we just talk about how that's actually like a huge gamble? Because this is Mozart we're talking about. Like, I'm shocked that he was willing to wait 10 years when like literally any other grave robber could have just come along in those 10 years. Like, that's kind of crazy. This man's kind of balls. Can we also talk about how this guy remembered where his grave was better than his wife? I know. Big oof. Big oof. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. Something about that makes me laugh because can you imagine trying to remember you have to do something 10 years after it happens? You just look at your calendar and you're like, oh yeah. Wow, 10 years. Oh man, time to go dig up Mozart. What'd you say, honey? Nothing, nothing. Just a lot of work today. Oh my God. (laughs) What's on the schedule today? Anyway, point being impressive if true. Um, but he, he's a, like a well-known grave robber. His name is Joseph Rothmeyer. And so, so so he manages to get the skull and he actually doesn't sell it, which is what I always assume a grave digger would do. I don't know. There's something weird to me about just having some famous person's skull, just keeping it. Very strange. And it doesn't really say how it passes from person to person, but uh, eventually makes it into a phrenological collection. You know, they study skulls, which eventually becomes a whole skull museum. But it eventually makes its way back to the Mozartium, which is the big Mozart museum in Salzburg in 1902. So a little over 100 years after Mozart passes, his skull does make its way back to uh, somewhat Mozart's family, the Mozart Museum. Close enough. (laughs) Which, you know, obviously, they're incredibly excited to have it. There is a record of the skull that he stole. He kept records of the things he stole. So they are able to match the skull with the record of Joseph Rothmeyer's account in order to verify it. Because in 1902, there's no DNA testing. So really, they have to go off of either phrenological studies or, you know, the description of the man who uh, waited 10 years to steal a skull. You know, 
The usual. Hmm. When they start to study the skull, they find an injury on the back of the skull. It, it, they can actually age when, when it was hit. And so there was suddenly a new theory because Mozart was expected to have died of probably like a rheumatic fever. But with this new head mm-hmm. wound, it opened up a lot of possibilities as to what happened to him and also explained why he was having consistent headaches and why he died so young, even though he didn't seem to really be in all that ill health. Because, I mean, that was young even for that time. You know, he... Yeah. And so if, if this is Mozart's skull, then suddenly we have a really interesting idea and a really interesting look into the last year of Mozart's life. So when we get the ability to absolutely confirm because you don't always want to trust a grave robber's account of things with dna evidence that that this is in fact mozart's skull so in 2006 104 years after they get the skull they were going to test the dna against two of mozart's relatives so the maternal grandmother and his niece's thigh bones which they gotten from the mozart family grave however when they do the dna testing not only is the skull not related to the bones they got from the family grave. None of the bones are related to each other at all. What? (laughs) Which means... (laughs) Whose bones are this? Which means they can't even deny that it still might be Mozart's skull. (laughs) The question is, whose bones are any of these? That's wild. Yeah, it leaves them with... Way more questions. Yeah. Well, and actually what's funny is they still have the skull. Because once again... It is their best guess at what might be Mozart's skull. (laughs) But with the problem of identifying an actual family member's bones, they can't really use DNA testing, which is really our only true solid lead, especially since they can't test it, obviously, against Mozart's other bones. Because still no one knows where the heck he was buried. There's just a memorial there now. So do we only have Mozart's supposed skull? Yeah. Like, they never found the rest of his oh, body. Oh, that's so weird. They, and we don't even know. The, oh, my God. They can't okay, find okay. the rest of his body because they don't know where it is. And even if they dug up the whole thing, what would they test the bones against? The skull? We have, we've been given a very circular problem. But wouldn't it make sense to test all the bones, like, to dig them all up and then test it with the skull? If you take his account correctly, if the grave uh-huh. robber got the wrong skull, since it was 10 years later and therefore the bodies would have been unidentifiable. Right then it would match another body in there, but it still wouldn't be Mozart. Right, right. That's true. And in fact, even though the head injury does make sense with some of the end-of-life problems that Mozart was having, the fact that, like, there was no reported injury in, like, the records of the the end of his life, that he had, like, a bad fall, does mean that there's also the chance that this is not him at all. The Mozartium does still have that skull, though. However, they don't display it anymore. The people who work there, the docents, were getting really weirded out by it. Which I don't know why it being Mozart's skull or not is any more or less creepy than it being anyone else's skull. But apparently it not being Mozart's skull, they want nothing to do with it. But actually, uh, you can do an advance request and they'll they'll show it to you. Which I wish I had known when I was there because I would have asked. Yeah. Yeah, but even now, they don't know what to do. I don't I don't actually know how you would figure that out. I guess I, my my only theory is that you could pull more bones from the Mozart family cemetery and figure out who, right the ones that most of the bones match with each other cuz I like I wouldn't rule out that maybe I don't the grandmother would be hard to explain but like maybe the niece was the product of cheating. Yeah. Yeah, the niece the niece is sketchy. Okay, we don't we don't have to put too much stock in the niece. Grandma, that's a little concerning. But like 
Yeah. How strange. Also, think about the poor scientist who was like, I'm about to prove that this is Mozart. I was so excited. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about them. And, like, not only that, imagine, like, the first us being like, oh, it's not related to it. Wait, none of them are related? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because that's one thing to just prove, oh, this isn't actually Mozart's skull. It's another thing to be like, oh, we have no way of knowing if this is Mozart's skull. Yep. It's like that news report. It was Geraldo (laughs) Rivera opening Al Capone's supposed, they found one of his vaults and they opened it. It was completely empty on live television. (gasps) This is that, but the Mozart edition. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's the the basic gist of how Mozart's skull may or may not be in the museum. Love that. Wow. All right. Let's talk about a little interesting uh, tidbit about Haydn's missing head. Now, I'm sorry. Ex- it's the end of what? <laughs> Haydn's missing head. How does this keep happening, though? You know, heads will roll, and we don't know where they go. Can you imagine, though? <laughs> imagine, though, like, walking into someone's home and then being like, Oh, yes, I have Mozart's skull, or I have Haydn's head. Yeah. We're, we're going to get into what the heck happens to Haydn's head, if we ever find it, who takes it, why it's taken. Um, so let's jump into it. So, it's the end of the 18th century, the Age of Enlightenment in Austria. <laughs> Joseph Haydn is one of the most famous composers of his time and was the crowned prize of his employer, Prince Niklaus Esterhazy II. Now, if you know literally anything about history... Obviously, the Esterhazy family had a huge amount of wealth and power, and at the time, having an excellent court composer was a huge flex. I mean, can you imagine the power of being able to say, oh, you know, I have a celebrated musical genius, Joseph Haydn, as my court composer, and um, who do you have? Oh, interesting. I never heard of him. Like, you could just imagine. This is Niklaus's, excuse me, Prince Esterhazy. (laughs) This is his favorite card to play, right? Yes. And he obviously has the power to get Haydn whatever he wants. The best musicians in all of Europe. So, you know, Haydn is doing okay. Haydn, while working for the Esterhazy court, meets a man named Joseph Rosenbaum. And he's a secretary for the Esterhazys, who's basically responsible for controlling the money for the Esterhazy household. So this man has a very, very comfy job. Now, Haydn and Rosenbaum become good friends, and it's through Haydn that Rosenbaum meets the absolute love of his life, the great soprano Teresa Gaussmann. And side note, Gaussmann was actually one of the best sopranos of her day and was known for her portrayal of the Queen of the Night in one of Mozart's early productions of the Magic Flute. So she's pretty cool. He hears her sing, instantly falls in love, you know, as one does. So naturally, the two want to be married. But as is always the case, Teresa's mother hates the idea and does everything in her power to stop the potential marriage. And can we just, like, take a moment? Like, why is it always, like, the mother causing trouble? <laughs> like, why why can nobody ever get married because, like, the mother is, like, not about it? Like, what's up with that? I don't get it. <laughs> anyway. I assume, I assume during this time there's literally nothing better to do if you're a woman. I guess so. Just plotting demise you know the story you learn how to be attractive you get married and then you meddle in your children's love lives that's what pride yeah. and prejudice taught me <laughs> it's always the 
mother. <laughs> uh, anyways, long story short, Rosenbaum asks the prince for his blessing because that's like something that he needs in order to marry her. And um, he catches the prince while he's, you know, walking down the stairs. And the prince is like, uh, uh, I don't know. Like, he just can't commit to letting Rosenbaum just marry this girl. And he's like, you know, maybe write me a formal letter um, so I can think about it. And Rosenbaum is crushed and writes about it in his diary, like the sad boy he is. And it's funny because the excerpt, like, literally... I'm paraphrasing, so excuse me, this is not factual, but just of it <laughs> is that he's like, oh, yet another sad and terrible day, much like many of the days in my life. And it's like, it literally starts off like that, and I was dead. Um, but anyways, he's super sad that the prince won't just give him permission, you know, because he thinks that he has good standing. Please write me a formal letter. I know. He's like, I'll get back to you in like five to ten business days. Thank you. So, meanwhile, Haydn feels pretty bad about the whole situation. And like the great friend that Haydn is, he offers to bring it up to the prince and really hype up the idea of the marriage, right? So Haydn's just a good guy trying to look out for his friend. And obviously Rosenbaum is over the moon. They get married and they all live happily ever after. Except none of that happens. Wrong. <laughs> Honestly, this whole story probably wouldn't even exist if the... if Teresa's mom would just been like, yeah, sure, whatever. Marry whoever you want. So if you want to know why Haydn's head is missing, let's just blame her. But <laughs> ultimately, Haydn does his best to put in a good word with the prince. And the prince decides against the marriage. And to make matters even worse, not only does he not give his blessing for the marriage, the prince removes Rosenbaum's position at the court and literally kicks him out. Ugh. So not only is he wifeless, he's now also jobless and kind of shamed. So understandably so, from this moment on, Rosenbaum turns from being a faithful ser servant to the Esterhazy family to having a deep-rooted, lifelong grudge against the prince. And this is where things get I really I can't really blame him on that one. Yeah, I mean, like, you know... That's pretty targeted harassment. Like that's pretty mean. And, like, also such a move. Because he was in charge of the family money, right? Like, he holds the purse strings. So that's, like, kind of a double blow. Like, the prince was a little stupid, I think. Like, of course this man's going to have a lifelong vendetta against you. You took his job and his wife. Like, <laughs> fast forward to 1809. Haydn finally kicks the bucket after a long time illness. And instead of getting the pompous, grandiose burial ceremony that he deserves... He's buried pretty hastily with a simple funeral because there were more important things going on. The man wrote the 104 time. symphonies. <laughs> Creation? Gotta put it on hold. That's what you get for writing 104 symphonies. You tempt fate like that by writing 96 more symphonies than you're not you're supposed to. Yeah, he was really testing it, okay? And that's what that's why this all goes down, alright? At the time, Austria was at war. Right. And Vienna is currently occupied by Napoleon's troops. So the prince is very much like, well, I really hate to do this to my favorite composer in prize possession, but I think I'll get to it when I get to it. Rip. Right. So, yeah. Very simple funeral. Now, little Rosenbaum sees this as the ultimate chance to get revenge on the prince. He's fully aware that the prince adores Haydn. Right. As does everyone. 
So in the middle of the night, about a week after Haydn's buried, Rosenbaum and this random guy, honestly, Johann Peter, and some grave robbers go to dig up Haydn and steal his head. Listen, this is Johann Peter's one claim to fame. (laughs) I know. At this point in the story, you know, it's reasonable to be wondering what the heck is going on. Like, Rosenbaum and Haydn were friends. So, like, why is he stealing his head? Yeah. So, the answer is kind of three-part. Partially, it's a huge F you to the prince, right? <laughs> like, stealing Haydn's head, I guess stealing the prize to Profi. So, that's a big motivation. <laughs> Secondly, <laughs> I'm sorry, Rosenbaum... I'm just like, imagine stealing the skull. <laughs> it's very odd, okay? I don't claim that any of this makes sense, but, you know... This is how it went down. Imagine if I stole the skull my head. of Beverly Sills to oh. <laughs> to flex on Michelle. So that I would be upset. <laughs> oh, the biggest flex, truly. So it's a, it's a big F you to the prince. Secondly, Rosenbaum really likes Haydn. And to Rosenbaum... He doesn't think it's weird at all. And if anything, it's very respectful to have the head of your dead best friend. He thinks it's very honorable that he should have it. If it wouldn't upset you, and, I would keep your skull with me. Well, that does upset me, so. I know. That's why I would never do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't like that at all. I'd make you um, into a puppet and I'd still do the podcast. Oh, how nice. You're not noticing <laughs> that a puppet would not work on an audio medium. No. It's fine. You could, like, seance me in. I have so much recording um. of you, I'll just make it up. <laughs> oh, no. Oof. And thirdly, at the time, Rosenbaum and the other guy, Peter, who's in on it, are incredibly interested in the science of phrenology. Now, if you're not familiar with the debunked fake science of phrenology, it's a huge, huge point of interest during this kind of age of enlightenment time because it's believed that many of your mental faculties, your talents, your intellect could be determined and studied and were physically studyable based off of your skull. Now, you didn't have to be dead to be studied by a phrenologist. No, they used to try and guess who was a criminal based on skull shape. Yeah, it was a huge thing. Um, This is like a giant... You know, all the upper courts love to talk about this stuff. It's it's very much a hot topic at your local dine, you know, your local party. Yeah, so you didn't have to be dead, but obviously if you were, it was much easier <laughs> for them to study you, correct? So this whole obsession with phrenology, also dissection in general, and just, you know, science, um, there's a lot of grave robbing happening. And to have the skull of somebody that is as famous and regarded as a genius such as Haydn you can imagine the prize that that would be Rosenbaum and Peter dig him up with the help of this grave digger and um, you know Haydn's pretty freshly buried it's only been a week so when they dig up the body and they chop off the head it's still totally recognizable that it's Haydn and it's pretty nasty because he's all green and he's bloated and he's decaying 
So the stench is unbelievable. It's also just a sight to see, right? The whole thing is very gruesome. You know, Haydn dies in May. So by the time they dig him up, it's hot. Okay. It's a hot summer night. Nothing about this is romantic at all. I accidentally threw something away in the garbage this morning and I had to go dig it out. And I almost puked just digging through my and own And it was garbage. Haydn's head. And it was Haydn's head. I almost <laughs> threw out Haydn's skull. No, oh, I was just saying grave robbing would not be for me. Like, I smell is such a problem for me. Cannot. Well, it wasn't for Rosenbaum either because they give him the head to take the carriage and he literally vomits. <laughs> um, so the whole thing is a mess. Same, bud. So they have Haydn's head. Right, he's vomits, they're in the carriage. Um, they gotta go clean it off. So what do they do? They take him to the um, Vienna General Hospital. Mind you, the head is only a week old. So everybody can tell that it's Haydn, right? It's not like so obscured. So this is like going to your local hospital with the head of like Brad Pitt and being like, hey, can you clean this off for me? Don't ask why I have it, but yeah. I need this, like, to be a skull now, please. But don't tell anybody. Like, that's crazy. So he's in cahoots with this doctor, and the doctor does whatever the heck it is that they do. See, this is why I don't believe Tchaikovsky could have been killed by arsenic and not had somebody eventually tell the story. Yeah. You know, Rosenbaum's all excited. He gets the head. He gets the skull all cleaned off, nice and polished for him. He takes it home. Rosenbaum has a collection of skulls, by the way, on his mantelpiece. So he has this uh, little ornate wooden box. Haydn's skull sits on a little white cushion, and it's decorated with a little lyre to show, you know, Haydn's musical genius. And it's the centerpiece of his mantle, um, his dear friend. And um, everything about this is totally weird. But when Rosenbaum invites over his phrenologist friends it's the talk of the town right like every like you know he's telling people he's got Haydn's head they're all examining it it's this crazy thing and apparently according to his that's a terrible way to to keep people from not knowing that you've stolen a head yeah it's completely bizarre um and so oh and they also said that when they removed the brain Haydn had a huge brain and Rosenbaum thought that that was so awesome because he's like of course he did he's a genius so side note so Rosenbaum genuinely believes that he gets away with it. Nobody knows. And, you know, with the war and everything going on, the Prince Esterhazy honestly forgets about Haydn and his lack of a burial. Until, fast forward yet again to 1820, and the Prince has a party and some acquaintance in passing happens to mention, you know, didn't you just leave Haydn in that burial grave like didn't you like not give him a proper burial like you said you would and the prince is like oh yeah <laughs> that's crazy i totally forgot and so they do this big thing they dig him up right it's been years he's pretty decayed and prince esterhazy is shocked they dig up old Haydn, and there's no head and he's pissed right He's, like, so upset. And he very quickly deduced that uh, Rosenbaum and Peter were responsible. So he sends people over to check it out. Um, they hide. I'm just imagining a scene where they're also there and they're just kind of looking at their feet trying to avoid eye contact. He, he was. He was, that, he was there. Rosenbaum was there. 
oh, I know he's there, but I just imagine it was very much a scene where, like, they're watching him dig it up and they're just not making eye contact with the priest. I know, Rose and Bob's like, what? That's crazy. What? No, no head. That's wild. Who would do such a How thing? How the heck did that happen? Where's that man's head? Yeah, so, you know, it's pretty obvious. So the prince sends people to go get the head. Um, Rosenbaum hides it in a skull mattress. That's a whole story in and of itself. He is very cunning, though, and he gives Prince Esterhazy a skull, except for it's not Haydn's skull, but he tells him it is. So Rosenbaum... (laughs) Once again, who in this time period would know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like... DNA testing, not a thing. So it's all hearsay. So this new skull, God knows who. Gotta look at the music section of the skull. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) These skulls don't come with barcodes. So God, who knows? The skull is put in with Haydn. Rosenbaum dies in 1829. And Haydn's real skull basically is just passed around. Rosenbaum had willed the skull to Peter. And then he gave it to a physician who gave it to a professor who gave it to a music society to it it just Haydn's head is like a trading card. Essentially what happened to Mozart's skull. (laughs) Supposed skull. Yeah. So it's literally like I said, it's literally passed around like a trading card. And oh, goodness, in 1932, um, Prince Paul Esterhazy and Nicholas um, his descendant built this big marble tomb for Haydn and they're trying to get the new skull but like things are delayed and it's just a whole mess and so finally it was only in 1954 that the skull Haydn's actual skull could be transferred and it was this huge ceremony thus completing the four or the the 400 oh my god the 145 year long burial process and when it's finally restored to the remainder of his body the substitute skull was not removed so Haydn's tube now has two skulls I actually love that yeah good for that person whoever their skull I know was. this like random dude or woman who knows is just chilling with Haydn's body in this like grand yeah. ornate marble tomb that alone though should have been proof enough that phrenology was not real in that they just didn't even know that they had the wrong skull yeah everything about it is just like you know of course now we're like phrenology is like the weirdest wackiest just fakest thing ever but at the time that was like groundbreaking science that's the story of Haydn's missing head and now two heads (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that comedy because I would watch I would watch that (laughs) Oh, yeah, like an HBO series. Oh. <laughs> a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor Haydn and his ever-traded head. It it starts with Haydn's death and just moves from there. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it'd be so good. And thus concludes our long-awaited spooky episode. That was very fun. And I did not realize how many composers had mysterious or contested deaths or... Bizarre burials that left them very vulnerable to having their skulls stolen. Truly. Unfortunate for them, but great for the spooky season. If you know any other really spooky or crazy curses or mysterious unsolved mysteries of classical music, please, please send them to us. This is 100% the stuff we would like to hear from you guys. So you can always contact us uh, on our socials at Opera Offstage on Facebook 
and Twitter and Instagram, or on our website, we have a contact page, opera-offstage.com. Before I go, I really want to tell you guys that we are going to have a little, we're going to have a little pre-Halloween party on Friday. We're going to play a bunch of Jackbox games, which if you don't know what that is, no worries. They're very easy. They're very simple, fun party games. You play them on your phone, but we're going to be hosting it on our Discord, which we'll be hosting on Discord. The link for our Discord is in our bio, and we're going to be hosting that Friday, October 30th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be a ton of fun. Come hang out with us. We're going to be playing some spooky trivia and a bunch of other fun games. So come and hang out with us. It's going to be so much fun. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Oh, and happy Halloween. (laughs) Happy Halloween, guys. 